first point that I want to make today is that when we think about Buddha, particularly in relationship to Hinduism, most Hindus in current times actually forget that he is one of the 10 Dashavatars and one of the important ones. So how did this situation come about? And, uh, you know, we had a wonderful uh, presentation from Dr. Jadi Bachi when he was talking about the contribution of German Indology. And uh, my study suggests that British Indology has preceded German Indology uh, by a few years, for sure. When you look, look into uh, German uh, Romanticism, for instance, you know, you have British Romanticism, at least for preceding by, by 20, you know, 25 years, um, you know, before German Romanticism actually caught on. And when you look at German Indology, you know, you also have British Indology, which is preceded by the same number of years. So, and you know, and my, my understanding also is that there's a reciprocal relationship between German Indology and British Indology. So all the things that Dr. Bakshi spoke about, you know, um, I would say that the foundations was laid by, by an individual in 1817. And the production of this particular book by that individual, The History of British India, uh, and the name of the individual is James Mill, became very important in transforming the narrative on India. You know, for most part, the people who were involved with the Asiatic society, you know, they were looking at India from what we would consider uh, as the romantic lens. But here came an individual who wrote, uh, you know, three volumes on history of British India. And these three volumes, they became authoritative in terms of India's representation and almost everything concerning India in the European imagination or the European representation. What I want to emphasize over here is that the, the history of British India became a very, very authoritative text when it became uh, when it was published in, in 1817. This was also the reason, uh, or rather the reason also was because James Mill, he became an important part of the East India Company. Uh, he rose through the ranks and by the time it was 1830, James Mill, in a certain sense, you can say that he had become the chief executive officer of East India Company because he was holding the highest position in uh, the headquarters of East India Company in London. James Mill and his cohort were also instrumental in putting together University of London. And the stuff that he wrote in the history of British India began to become part of the academia. And when you look at the subsequent publications on the history of British India that came from the Cambridge University Press and Oxford University Press, you find that these texts are basically replicating the plan that had been put together by James Mill. Now, what is the important contribution that James Mill did? James Mill basically inverted the discourse, the romantic discourse, which was occurring before him. The Christians had started this, but you know, but I'm talking about people who would actually identify with the secular tradition. And in History of British India, Volume 1, he writes seven chapters on Hindus. 
And in all these seven chapters, what he is doing is that he is describing Hindus as savages, barbarians, uncouth, rude, brute, and so on and so forth, in as many ways as possible. Uh, he begins the discourse by saying that the Hindus are rude and brute because they have no sense of history. In fact, you know this entire narrative that 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 you have around historicism and uh, and history of India and and India is not lacking uh, any sense of history. The the genesis of this can actually be traced, you know, uh, in the writings of James Mill. In the second chapter, he describes the Hindu social order uh, as hierarchical and oppressive. In the third chapter, he basically talks about forms of governance. And there also, it's basically the same story. And you know, what he's saying is that the, the Hindu forms of governance right from antiquity has been hierarchical and oppressive. And then he goes on to describe the taxation structure. There also, it's the same story. In the next chapter, he talks about uh, the the uh, the Manu Dharma Shastra, and there's a uh, there's a, there's a clear representation over there once again of the Dharma Shastra that it is nothing but hierarchical and oppressive. And then he goes into talking about you know the characteristics of Hinduism and the manners of Hindus, and uh, you know they they also it's the same story so in a certain sense it would be very very difficult to basically find one positive representation on the hindus in the history of british india and this particular book as i was telling you it basically became the authoritative text in description of matters concerning india and hindus and i think it is in this light of what occurred in 1817 that we need to look at the subsequent developments uh, you know, of uh, the narratives on Hindus. The next point that I want to make is that it is, it's basically in the backdrop of the hierarchical and oppressive nature of Hindus that Buddhism is characterized as egalitarian and emancipatory. And Dr. Bakshi you know, went into the details of German Indology how that happened over a period of time. So this is, you know, this is this is this is the the fundamental source where the distortion basically begins to happen. And because the Dharmashastras had been demonized to a considerable extent, the cosmology behind the Dharmashastra never gets discussed. And when you look into the Dharmashastras, you know, of course, the four varnas are described, the four ashramas are described. The sannyas ashram is very well described, and you know, uh, and what are sannyasis expected to do? They are described very well as well. So, in a certain sense, when Buddha was consumed by an existential crisis, and when he uh, when he basically left uh, his kingdom, he was essentially moving away from the fourfold order, and he was entering the sannyas ashram in exactly the same manner as it is actually described in the Dharma Sutras. What is it that he does? You know, uh, he basically cuts his hair. The sannyasis of that particular time, they were supposed to, you know, uh, shave their, ha their hair off completely or would have shikha. This is described in the Dharma, Dharma Sutras. They were supposed to have a begging bowl. 
this also is described in the uh, in the dharma sutra and what we also need to recognize is that sanyas was the ashram when a particular individual was moving away from the fourfold order and was basically moving away from the varnash the, the varnashrama the varnashrama was constituted by the three gunas so in a certain sense the individual was going to engage in practices which will allow the individual to transcend the three gunas and eventually become a yogi or an enlightened person who is described within the tradition as trigunatita this understanding is very very un- is, is 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 very important as far as the sanyas ashram is concerned and the description of a yogi is concerned so sanyas ashram is specifically the time when you are moving away from the four varnas and you are entering into a situation where you will be able to transcend the three gunas and become an enlightened person so if in buddhist literature if you find buddha speaking against the varna system it should not be surprising because buddha first became sanyasi and later he remained an an individual who was basically leading a group of sanyasis buddhism was not followed by the householders buddhism was supported by householders buddhism was practiced essentially by sanyasis and once again when you go into the dharma the the the, the, the dharma shastras you will find that the practice of rich what are what are called as rituals today you know or the practice of ceremonies they were not important for the sanyasis the practice of rituals or ceremonies was supposed to be practiced by people who were in brahmacharya and grihastha sanyasis even today are not supposed to be ritualistic they are not supposed to be performing ceremonies so i'm going back again to this this crucial understanding that if you remove buddhism or the practices of buddhism from the the ashrama of sanyasa and the world of yogis it should not be surprising that the distortions will come buddhism must be looked into you know from these two perspectives so to just to emphasize this point what i'm saying is that the sanyasis even in the earlier times they were not supposed to be engaging in any kind of rituals or ceremonies and sanyasis were not supposed to be following they were now others and this traditional understanding is still prevalent in ancient india because it's commonly understood or noted or you know and it's 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 commonly commonly stated jati na poocho sadhu ki traditional india even today does not talk about the jati of a sadhu or a sanyasi because this understanding is deeply embedded within the tradition that with the moment a sanyasi uh you know takes sanyas or an individual takes sanyas he or she has started moving away from the fourfold order and it is and and he or she has basically started moving away from the three gunas which essentially determine the varna of an individual now let me come to the second point you know where uh, where you find the uh, you know the distortion of buddhism and this is particularly in relationship to how um, ashoka is described 
And for that, what I'm doing is that, you know, I'm going into one of the major uh, rock edits uh, that was put together in the times of uh, Ashoka. This is rock edit 12. It goes something like this. This is a translation, you know, which I've got from one of the texts. The beloved of the gods, the king Piyadasi, honors all sects and both ascetics and laymen with gifts and various forms of recognition. But the beloved of the gods do not, do not consider gifts of honor to be as important as the advancement of the essential doctrine of all sects. The progress of the essential doctrine takes many forms, but its basis is the control of one's speech so as not to extol one's own sect or disparage another's on unsuitable occasions, or at least do not, at least to do so only mildly on certain occasions. On each occasion, one should honor another man's sect. By doing, by doing so, one increases the influence of one's own sect and benefits that of the other man. While by doing otherwise, one diminishes the influence of one's sect and harms the other man's. Again, whosoever honors his own sect or disparages that of another man wholly out of devotion to his own with a view to showing it in a favorable light harms his own sect even more seriously. Therefore, concord is to be commanded so that men may hear one another's principles and obey them. This is the desire of the beloved of the gods, that all sects should be well informed and should teach that which is good and that everywhere the adherents should be told. The beloved of the gods does not consider gifts or honor to be as important as the progress of the essential doctrine of all sects. Many are concerned with this matter, the officers of Dhamma, the women's officers, the managers of the state farms, and other classes of officers. The result of this is the increased influence of one's own sect and glory to Dhamma. So this is, you know, the, the 12th major rock edict of Ashoka. So this narrative that you find that Ashoka promoted Buddha Dharma is, or Buddhism, is absolutely wrong because this is not what Ashoka did. Ashoka himself is saying that you know one should not one should one should not be imposing one's tradition on others. And why was he doing this? There is a very clear instruction, you know, in the Arthashastra, and I've gone through this entire book where it is clearly mentioned that a king should not be imposing his tradition, quote unquote, religion, culture, language, dress on the people that he is ruling. This is their, you know, they're very, very clear instructions within Arthashastra and also in Dharmashastra, where these uh, uh, suggestions or advice or pieces of advice are being made to the, to the king. So then what is it that Ashoka was actually doing? 
Ashoka was promoting dharma. Ashoka was promoting Raj dharma. And Ashoka was promoting dharma as it is un understood within the Dharma Shastra. In fact, in Artha Shastra also, the instructions are very, very clear that the king must promote dharma, not the dharma of any sect or religion, but the general dharma as, you know, as we Indians and Hindus have, have always understood. That is what the injunction is. The injunction is not about, you know, Buddhism. So this entire narrative that you find in, uh, you know, in academia worldwide, that Buddhism was being promoted by Ashoka, and it was basically egalitarian Buddhism that was being promoted by Ashoka in opposition to oppressive Hinduism is nothing but falsehood. And this perspective becomes very, very clear when we start looking into the Dharma Sutras, Dharma Shastras, as well as the Artha Shastra. The last point that I want to make over here is that there are two things that are extremely important as we, uh, as we create this field, you know, where we are critically interrogating uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the Western narratives or let me put it this way, you know, the mainstream narratives, because the mainstream narratives have essentially been formulated by the Western narratives, that we critically examine what was written on the Indian traditions in, uh, you know, in, in the 18th, 19th, and, and 20th century. And as we critically examine, uh, you know, the narrative, which was Set, set in place around the particular time, it is also important to go back to the original text and look at the text for what they're saying. That's number one. And more importantly, it is important to look at the cosmology which is behind the text. Because if you do not understand the cosmology behind the text, then, you know, then we will continue to make errors and we will continue to make representations. And I think this becomes very clear, you know, when you look at what, what James did, what James Mill did, uh, you know, uh, in relationship to Hinduism, and what, uh, or rather, the truth that emerges when you begin to look at the texts around the times when uh, Buddha promoted his own tradition or his own sect.